Welcome back to the Tapes Archive Podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have one of prog rock's greatest drummers, Bill Bruford. At the time of this interview in 1980, Bruford was 31 years old and out on tour with a solo band supporting his album, Gradually Going Tornado. In the interview, Bruford talks about why he left Yes, how Robert Fripp tried to cancel the King Crimson's 1974 Central Park concert, and the advantage of making a name for himself in bands like Yes, Genesis, and King Crimson. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. How do you think you're going to have to change your music to make it commercial stations? Well, I don't know. I mean, am I getting played on any commercial stations yet? Am I getting played on any commercial stations? No, not. Not on any commercial stations. Not that I know of. No. Well, the reason for that largely is because there's no singing on the record. And are you going to add vocals eventually? I don't know. I don't know. That uh, rather depends whether we can think about anything to sing about, which is quite probable. Dave and I both love vocals. There's there's no inbuilt prejudice against vocals either. It's just that this particular album didn't have any vocals. Can you sing? No, I can't. I'm unrecorded singer, so I don't know what my recorded voice is like. And you've been in some big bands, some of the most popular bands, especially Mm. Yes, and on such a huge level where you were playing major halls all across Mm. the country for Mm -hmm. years. And now here you are, and I guess you're staying at less of a hotel than perhaps you were when you were with Yes. Well, yes, that's that's not the only problem. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you, how, how does... How does, how do you feel about that? Because I mean, oh, you, you've obviously made a name for yourself. And, uh... Well, the whole advantage of making a name for yourself is, is that we get to come to America with slightly more esoteric music. And, and the whole thing is a viable proposition, which is really good. It doesn't bother me at all. Listen, I'm, I'm one of these stable kind of characters who, who, doesn't, who doesn't mind. I, I like to be able to play Madison Square Garden. Not that I ever have, actually. I hasten to wear and, uh, and clubs. Although there's another whole level of problems that occur past two or 3,000 seats. Right now, we can just play the music and, and know it would be fairly intimate. What kind of problems did you have that are erased now? A group tends to fly on automatic pilot very easily at that level. It's incredibly unintimate. It's, it's amazingly easy to play in front of 17,000 blacked-out faces. And, you, know, you don't feel any pressure at all because the sound system is so enormous. And the whole schmozzle is such a, an isolated and insulated kind of affair. There's almost no reaction, no visible reaction from anybody to your playing. Like in a club, you can see people reacting. In those places, none of that happens at all. It's an extraordinary kind of ritual. It's, it's an amazing, amazing feeling of power, but a little empty. How did you like that Genesis tour? It was a strategic bit of work for me, really. It got me to America to uh, keep the interest up in anything I might want to do in the future, namely this. I see, I've had this uh, plan for quite a long time. And America, I'd forgotten how to play in those big places, and I'd forgotten all about America generally, and America had forgotten all about me. And I knew I wanted to make a, a record that feels good to me, which subsequently feels good to me. And so you need some sort of strategic planning for a thing like that. And Genesis was very suitable at the time. It got me playing. It got my face around. It wasn't the best music in the world, but then it wasn't going to be played forever by me. It was a, a five-month job, which was fine. I could have stayed there probably, but I had other plans. So I think we used each other in a way. I think they got a good drummer and I got some, I got some return for it because uh, I was able to come here. What attracts you to America so much? You seem to want to come here quite often. Well, without, without America, you, it's fine, very hard to exist, to buy Prophet 5 synthesizers, to buy Yamaha pianos, to uh, buy the other tools. It's, uh, Europe is a very strong place, too, and we could pass in America altogether, probably, and go and work Europe, but in fact, we've more or less decided to work America in favour of Europe. Any particular reason for that? No, except that it's uh, the healthiest record market in the world. Therefore, for any given 
output in a musical direction you're likely to gain. You'll speak to the most people, you'll disseminate music the quickest, most efficiently, hotly followed by Canada and Japan. I wasn't sure if you would really be the person who would like to talk to as many people as you can. I like to talk. I'd sooner not talk, actually. I am doing this as a, as a promotion exercise. There's no doubt about it. I need you, and I would like you to write about what it is that we're doing, because I'm interested in it and really want to get it across. But it would be lovely one day if it didn't have to say anything, and people kind of associated with the kind of music Dave and I were going to play, and there was no constant need to keep talking about it. You see, we have to try and compete with Americans, and Americans usually talk along with me. We've come from England. We're touring for six weeks, which to us seems like forever. But an American band will tour for six months without thinking about it. And so in order to compete at all, to be in the same race at all, we must make a use, you know, of every minute that we're here. And you're basically using colleges and... Uh... Yes, we're coming in at the small level, at the low level, where you start with, with clubs. We're not, we're not at the bottom rung, I hasten to add. I mean, the clubs, oh, no are, the clubs are sold out, and uh, that's great. That's great. So we're not, we're not actually at the starting gate. And I like to do clubs. It is, it's a, the American club system is excellent. Good sound systems, by and large. And sometimes you can do it for the radio at the same time and so forth. And it's a good system. And there's no other way for us to do it, really. On your next level of this, how are you going to, how are you going to go about it? Well, in, in the next sort of rung up. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, well, in America, you have to be seen to uh, keep climbing rungs, don't you? Or else they think you're sort of losing, I think. It's a success-orientated country. And I, I have a feeling we'll be able to come back shortly and hopefully play in some colleges and uh, small theatres. That will, that will be good for another year or two, or something like that. And then we'll worry about what happens from then on. What would you want to tell people about your music? It's not deathly serious. We're not about to be put in the Guggenheim Museum. It's not... It's uh, the, the feeling with instrumental music is that this must be either jazz or classical or something like a work of art of some nature, and therefore very difficult music. And I don't see that at all. We have some quite interesting bits of music, but they're not frightening or, or inaccessible particularly. And I think we, when we play, we play in such a way as to invite people to listen to it, invite them in, rather than repel them and, and oppress them and defy them not to like us, which is an attitude that some rock bands have, but I don't like it a lot, I don't like it at all. So the recession has also affected music. Uh, music has become more standardised. Record companies are achieving a quicker turnover on their investment than they need to. Everybody has to survive in America, and, and it really, it's, um, there's an area of fear around, actually, especially from record company personnel. Now they're starting to cut from the bottom. That's right. Groups yeah. too. Now groups too. Yeah, there is definitely a climate of uh, where is the sword going to fall next. It's partly due to the good auspices of our management company that we're allowed to sort of keep going, I think. Because, well, there is potential there. Let me not be too modest. Could you talk about the groups that you played in and how you feel about the people? Uh, Your first band? Well, Savoy Brown. Uh, Savoy Brown was my first band. Uh-huh. And that was pretty awful and lasted for three days. And that was, that was no good either. That was no good. I, I came across my first guitar hero there, Kim Simmons. Uh, and they're, they're hopeless kind of individuals, guitar heroes, hopeless. <laughs> then I looked around a bit and came across Yes. And that was a good band for a while. Great. Excellent band. I mean, it might still be, but I don't know it very well now. And uh, I'd had enough of that after five or six albums, simply because um, I, I didn't want to spend all that, all that time doing the sixth album. But close to the age of the last one had taken ages to do. And a lot of sweat and arguing and blood and trouble generally. And uh, I was wanting to play in King Crimson anyway, which is uh, how come I, I got to be with Robert Fripp. We'd supported each other in America. And, and uh, Robert said, I think you're about ready to uh, play in King Crimson now. In his usual kind of superior way. And so I said, well, good, that sounds great. And uh, off we went. And we did five American tours very quickly. 
So when the, the last show they ever played as a matter of fact in Central Park. Oh, you were there? Yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was an emotional night, that was. In fact, when I talked to him about that, he said, Tripp said that uh, that was the closest that that band had come to being great since the first band. Like he said, that the last King Crimson and the first King Crimson were the best. It was an extremely good evening. And you might like to know one further anecdote about that story, which is that Robert tried his absolute damnedest to cancel that gig. He invented a buzz on the sound system, which uh, was almost inaudible, the kind of buzz that you would hear out of any sound system, and uh, said it was impossible for us to play. And he was cajoled and bullied and threatened into it. There were 7,000 people there. And he was just about dragged on stage to do that gig, and now he will no doubt hail it as being yeah, one of the strongest gigs the band ever did. He is a man of contradiction. Um, on many levels, and not the least of which is that. So that's another further anecdote about that gig. But it was a great gig. We were really powerful. I couldn't believe it myself. One of those great nights. And you can't believe that you're as strong as you are. I really enjoy that music. It's funny, though, because, I mean, I, I thought it was a great show, except I think that possibly the band alienated some of the audience. I mean, you started with uh, Schizoid Man, and a lot of the music was semi-experimental <laughs> to the point where... Uh, Extremely you know. experimental. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, we were working on the on the on the on the idea that you need you need a good tune to start the music off to say hello to the audience and something strong they know, and uh, you need to play a hit at the end just so they sort of recognise who's being the same group they thought they were going to get, <laughs> and in between you can do whatever you like, which still pertains. That still is possible because audiences tend to go away only remembering. They remember the vibe, of course, but but only remembering musically the last five or ten minutes, and they'll judge the success of the concert very easily. They remember very strongly the way you exit. The story of a King Crimson concert in those days was that they'd almost be leaving their seats all, all, <laughs> all the way through it, except that something just held them. To yeah. it. And that was a good band. Good band. But anyway, uh, Robert then decided he wanted to go off and stop being in rock and roll bands for a while. And that left me to play with other people, because I only knew about eight people at that stage. I played in rapid succession with Gong and Roy Harper, and I did some session work, and then Genesis. Uh, National Health. I came here and did a record with Pavlov Stop. I was trying to find out what to do, really, what, what, what it was that I wanted to do, you know, by, by being with other people and asking them what it is, and watching them, how they went about things, watching where keyboard players' fingers went, <laughs> so you could maybe write a tune one day, that kind of thing. But it's always, it's always seemed to me that, that uh, running a band would be great, but if I could get a sense of direction, it would work out all right, and here we are. Hence feels good to me, and then it's slight, a slight sidetrack through UK. Which was a group kind of designed around that time, and it was convenient to me to sort of use it as a promotion thing. But then again, it scuppered feels good to me, which was kind of sat on a bit in favour of the UK project. And then the non success, really, of UK for me and Alan. I mean, it was a successful record, the first one. But see, I had an enormous budget, enormous promotional budget. I mean, it was, it was a high priority thing. I mean, the president of the record company was putting on it. I mean, the people. But, you know, I, I can feel a, a, a cooler draft now for us. Mm -hmm. Right, they're going to they're gonna want their money back. That's for sure. We have four named musicians. But that's a good way to do it. That's all right. I'm not, I'm not begrudging that. I mean, I opted for that, and um, I knew it would be so. Perhaps your experience with so many other bands, I mean, on different levels of road shows would you know, make you a little bit more... I don't know, it would probably make me, if I were in your position, more skeptical of everything. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a realist. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any way poisoned kind of I'm not cynical or bitter in any way I, I, I've got my just desserts and more so I've been very lucky I mean the first band I was in was in the second band was a hit band you know very lucky but uh, I think you've also got to use the money creatively if you can you know and just try and do something with it because in a way yes the success is helping us today there's, there's some money around that kind of thing you see partly because I used to play with a group and that's if that's what gets us to play at the Paradise tonight that's fine whatever gets you there great as long as you play and you play well you think people come expecting you to play roundabout? 
No, no, no. Oh, that's better. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, ages and ages ago, yeah. We, we don't have any calls for... Uh, we have a couple of calls for Alan Holdsworth mm-hmm. um, because there is a confusion as to whether Alan Holdsworth is on this tour or not, which he's not because Alan likes to play around with lots of other people and um, doesn't like touring that much anyway. Actually. How do you see yourself now that you've gone through all these bands? And- oh, as a, as a beginner. As my plans having fallen into two stages so far and I had one stage from when I was um, 18 to 29 about 11 year period of learning about things and watching other groups playing and so forth and now it feels incredibly like my first tour of America incredibly exciting and uh, right at the beginning of something fresh which for me is like a second and win the second part of my musical career something like that you know very loosely speaking but now there'll be just another whole layer of problems principally how to write better music that's number one problem uh, not that the music's bad, but I mean, one always wanted to learn more about how to write music. But I'm, I'm really lucky. I think I'm fantastically lucky to, to have had a band that's got some money, and, which is great. It's sort of a tactless question, but I think people would be interested to know. Are you wealthy? Am I wealthy? <laughs> By American standards, no. What do you think of the, the last UK album? It's played too fast. <laughs> I used to like The Only Thing She Needs. I used to love doing that on stage, but it's really speeded up to an impossibly unfunky tempo. I don't know, I, th- I, I can kind of see the, uh, see the motivation behind it, and I don't think it's entirely laudable. I think they consume rather too much of, of the scarce resources of rock and roll that are around, too much equipment, too much time rehearsing, too much time in the studio, too much time in everything. But having said that, Eddie Jobson particularly is an extremely good musician, and a very friendly person, you know, who, who one day, I'm sure, if, if not in the next year, will be a, a big star. Good luck to them. It's not the path I would have taken, which is why I'm not taking it. I'd prefer to do it more at this level to start with and work out sort of thing. What are you listening to now? It is hard, you see. I mean, I could tell you the last three, the three records I was asked to play at WPIX last night in New York. I could tell you the last three concerts I went to. Three records were Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. I was made to love it by Stevie Wonder. And I Want You Back by Jackson 5. The last three concerts were Keith Tippett's Ark, which is a 22-piece loosely described, very loosely described jazz orchestra in London. Um, Sir Michael Tippett's, the English compo- aging English composer's opera called The Icebreak, which had some fantastic modern music in it, some really beautiful writing that I just was astounded by. And the concert before that, I can't rightly remember. So, I mean, you know, in factual terms, those are what I'm listening to. I listen to the American radio to see if there's any life there still. <laughs> Which, uh, there's, a, there's a bit in places, but it's so formatted by those little sensors, those little hitlets out there. Radio has a, a fantastic power here. And I hate, usually, to come to a country and, and make pronouncements upon it. But as a matter of interest, from a musician's point of view, there is probably too much music. Uh, the, the, oh, industry, the industry has created itself in years of, of glorious success. And now it needs to eat. It, it's a, what is it? It's like, it's a, there's a Greek... There's a Greek classical one. It's like many headed hydra in a way. Eating its young, yeah. Eating its young. The hydra. Is it a hydra or something like that? It's beginning to swallow its own tail, you know. Um, it's in sort of death rows, peculiar kind of awful death rows, you know. And a group like Bruford exists somewhere, in, you know, in this. And we are interested in survival, not only of our own personal musical wishes, but, but in surviving somehow in, in this rock machinery. It'll turn, of course, you know, in 1985. It'll probably be different. And you can bet your sweet bippy I'll be around. I take it you don't like Donna Summer either, and I don't know. It was always called R and B. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It was always called R and B, and it had it had uh, dignity, then, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs>
Um, Maybe that's what it's missing. Right? You see, the monster also also seems to lower your dignity. It lowers the dignity of people incredibly. The, the monster devours humans as well. You know, and it, it will remove your dignity if you're not extremely careful. And it usually comes through repetition. That's the first sign of, of uh, a constant need to formalize, be the same as other people, play the same thing, and repeat it. So if EG Records said to you, uh, Bill, we want to sell a million albums in the States, and we want you to sacrifice a little bit and maybe make a top 42. Uh, no, I hasten to add, EG are much more subtle than that. They're, they're less subtle, which is why you have a go-between between, between yeah. uh, the musicians and Polydor. I mean, I was up in Polydor in New York, and, and if you spend more than five hours there, I think you said this, you just go crazy because you're, you're, you're talking a different language, really, and there is a big gap. And their business is to sell it, which is fine, and really it's not my business. It really is not. In many ways, I shouldn't even go there, actually. I'm interested in learning all, all possible facets and pretending I'm not shocked. <laughs> but I am amazed many times at the, at the size of the monster, you know, the whatever we'll call it, the, you know, the Hydra or whatever. It is a monster, and I am, I pretend not to be shocked, but I am amazed. It's no use just shouting at the enemy, shouting at the, the Hydra and calling it an enemy. I mean, that'll get you nowhere fast, because uh, it will just sort of recoil and it's not, it's not interested in that kind of behavior. And they're not the enemy anyway. They exist, it's a capitalist setup, and they exist. But it helps if you have go-betweens who can sort of translate between the two. And so NEG are in some way go-betweens. I mean, I'm sure the conversations that go on about this band, Bruford, between the head of EG Records and the head of Polydor Records, would probably, which never get relayed to me, would probably horrify me with the actual truth that was said, and it's about its potential and stuff, but I'm cushioned from that to a degree, because I'm fairly resilient, but I'm not so resilient that I couldn't be heartbroken sometimes. Could there be a record company that existed on goodwill and maybe putting out a product that they don't think would Well, out? that's why this, the independents have come up in England. Uh, they're trying for that. Virgin Records started out like that in England, but backfired miserably, Virgin Records. As unfortunately, the goodwill got lost. The ordeal by fire, the ultimate truth is that you have to sell the damn thing. And there are Polydor high up, extremely intelligent people. Jerry Jaffe, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, is a, is a doctor of, of microchemistry. And, and he's, a, he's an amazingly, amazingly intelligent person. And no fool, but he's not the president of the company. And in America, certainly, the president of the company has a lot of, you know, he basically says what's happening. Okay, thank you. Great. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.